0: Today's scripture verse comes from the book of John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given authority over all flesh, This is the word of God. Thanks for reading God's word to us, Jen. And thank you for praying for us, Nancy. Thank you to all of you who've been serving today as part of this uh, worship gathering. We are in John 17 today. So if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to John 17. Click there in your, uh, in your device. And we're going to uh, we're gonna, we're gonna eavesdrop. On Jesus today we're gonna to listen to him as he prays Jesus here is only hours away from death he's with these 11 men who he just recently called his friends these are men whom he will commission as his apostles and he's been teaching them and comforting them all evening as he prepares them for his departure then here in chapter 17, he entrusts them to his father. And he also entrusts himself to his father, moments away, hours away from his own death. So leading up to, um, to this, what we're going to look at today, we've got a solid four chapters of Jesus opening up his heart to his disciples. And here he opens up his heart to his father, God. Verse seven, chapter 17, verse one says, having said these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven. His disciples now, like I said, have become eavesdroppers, just like us. They're listening to Jesus talk to his father. They're listening to God talk to God. And there's so much here, the, 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 the depth, the, it's so profound, it's so rich. J.C. Ryle, he was a 19th century bishop of Liverpool. He, he said this. He said, he that reads the words spoken by one person of the Blessed Trinity to another person, by the Son to the Father, must surely be prepared to find much that he cannot fully understand. So he's saying, you read this prayer, you better be ready for the fact that there's going to be a lot here that you don't understand. He goes on to say, there are sentences and words and expressions in the 26 verses of this chapter which no one probably has ever unfolded completely. And we're certainly not going to do that today. Any attempt by me to be comprehensive would would be dumb, to say the least. So really, I'm just aiming to be selective as we go through the 26 verses of this chapter. Maiming to hopefully be helpful, too. So what we're going to do is we're going to look briefly at what Jesus asks for. That's all we're going to look at. What does Jesus ask for when he speaks to his father? Because what he prays for reveals what he cares about most. Would you agree with that? That, that the things that he's going to open up his heart and pour out to his father now, having just spoken at length, his disciples, getting them ready for his death as he himself looks forward to his death, Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that the things that he's praying about here, his final words to his father in the presence of his disciples reflect the things that mean most to him, things he cares about most deeply. And so because these are the things that Jesus cares about most deeply, when we look at this prayer, it helps us. To know what we should care about most deeply. His prayer shows us what we should be living for and what should really matter to us. So often, I think we struggle with purpose, don't we? What, what's my purpose in life? What should I be about? What should I focus? Whatever time on earth I have? What should I focus on? What should I do with my life? What is it that really matters? Well, a close look at Christ's prayer here will guide us. He helps to give us purpose and direction here as he speaks to his Father. And he asks basically for four things. Here's what he asks for. He asks for God the Father to glorify, to keep, to sanctify, and to unify. Glorify, keep, sanctify, and unify. So let's look at the first of those. What does it mean that Jesus asks his Father to glorify? When when Christ begins to pray, what what are the first things he says? He says, Father, look at verse 1, the hour has come. The hour of his death has come. That's what he's talking about. The hour of his death and everything that will result from that death. And as he looks at that, he says these words, Father, Father. Glorify your son. First thing he asked for. Glorify your son. What does that mean? He's saying, God, Father, honor your son. Show off, shine a spotlight on the son's majesty and power. Reveal the weight of my glory, he's saying. And Jesus knows that that's going to happen. And the way it's going to happen is through the cross that instrument of humiliation and shame is going to be the instrument that God the Father uses to display the beauty and the weightiness of who Jesus the Son is. That's where Jesus is going to accomplish the purpose for which he came into the world. That's where he's going to surrender himself quietly as the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice, who was chosen to take the sins of a multitude that no one can number. He's going to go there to that cross, and he's going to substitute himself. He's going to bear the curse of sin in the place of his friends. And in doing that, once and for all, he's going to liberate his friends from the power of that curse. You see, their sinful lives earned them death. But Jesus' death would now earn them eternal life. Look what it says in verse 3. Jesus says, this is what eternal life is, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Their sinful living had alienated them from the Father, but Jesus' death would bring them back to the Father, to know him. And he says, to know God the Father and Jesus the Son is to have eternal life. Jesus' death is going to accomplish God's plan to rescue and to reconcile sinners to himself. And when Jesus thinks about that, he thinks, that's glorious. That's glorious. It's going to require him to experience pain and alienation and suffering and punishment that no one has ever experienced. But he sees it as glorious because of what it accomplished. And as Jesus thinks about being glorified, his thoughts, you see, they extend beyond the cross. He's not just thinking about what's going to happen on the cross. He's thinking beyond that. Look at verse 4. He says, "I glorified you on earth, Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed." Jesus Christ in this moment is deeply conscious of this reality. The cross is not the end for him. What will follow that shame will be pure joy. Hebrews 12, we looked at this last week. It says that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, that's what he's praying for here too. It, Jesus is asking the Father to restore to him the glory that he had before he became a man. He's asking the Father to restore to him what he experienced before any of us had ever existed. He's asking the Father to to reverse the the self-emptying that he willingly experienced when he came to earth as a human being and to restore him to that place of honor on his throne. Jesus is asking for glory. And yet, Get, get this, this is, this is amazing to me. This, the splendor that Jesus is, is asking for, the, the exaltation that he's looking forward to, even that is not an end in and of itself. Because look at what he says at the end of verse 1. He says, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. You see what's happening here? This is what it's all about for Jesus. In his final hours, as he's reflecting on everything that's ahead of him, everything that he has done and that he will do, and he's thinking about the purpose of it all, it all comes back to this for him. I have glorified you on earth, Father, by doing everything that you've asked me to do. Now glorify me, exalt me, honor me, he says, because by doing that, I'm going to bring more honor to you. You see how it's like a cycle, Uh, It's just honor being reflected back and forth between the Father and the Son. It's this eternal cycle of of honoring and deferring that happens within the Trinity. As the Father seeks to make much of the Son and the Son seeks to make much of the Father. There's a takeaway here for us. Jesus Christ's ultimate goal is to bring honor and praise to his Father. The entire scope of his life was aimed there. Does that tell us something about why we exist and what our purpose should be in this life? If Jesus was all about honoring his Father, what does that tell us about why we exist? It's why we live too, it's why we're here. But if that's what consumed the Jesus, is it what consumes us? Is it what consumes you? Is your life all about honoring God? To display to the world, to help people see how awesome he is? If not, and I think we'd all have to admit that at the very, very least, we have to admit, no, that's not always my aim. At the very least, we'd have to say not always, right? I think it's worth asking what is our aim? What are we about most of the time? What is it that really consumes us as we think about our lives? Jesus is showing us, he's modeling for us what life is about. It's about honoring, glorifying, displaying the beauty and majesty of who God is. And the amazing thing about this is that as Jesus, the Jesus who's modeling this for us, he's the same Jesus who told his disciples earlier in the same evening, right? Back in, in chapter 15, he says, I, I, want my, I want you to have my joy. I want you, my friends, I want you to have my joy. And then, and then in the next chapter, John 16, he says, I want you to have my peace. I want to give you all the peace I have. You know what I think Jesus is telling us? That living with the consuming aim of honoring God above all else, not fulfilling your own desires, not making a name for yourself, not satisfying your own selfish goals. If he says, if you make life all about me, you're going to actually experience my joy, my peace. Because Jesus existed with more joy and more peace than any of us have ever experienced. And he lived life all about his life was all about glorifying his father, and so he's showing us: if you will live for the same purpose that I lived, you too will experience the kind of joy. I'm not going to take joy away from you. You're going to experience more joy. You're going to experience my peace if you live with a with a consuming focus on what I lived focused on. After Jesus asks the Father to glorify, he he then begins to pray more for his disciples. He says he calls them these are those whom you have given me, Father. In verse nine, he says, "I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." Jesus, it's not that Jesus doesn't pray for the world, but here he's praying in a very specific way for the people. He says. You've given me, Father. He goes on to say, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. It's so interesting. Jesus does this a few times in this, in this prayer. He says, these people, they're mine because you've given them to me, but they're also yours. They're mine and they're yours. God the Father and God the Son, they, they share ownership of us. It sounds, you could get the, the sense that he's just praying for those 11 guys in the room that night. But he's not, not just them, because look what he says in verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You see, he's praying for every single person who will believe the gospel. That was learned, received and transmitted by these apostles and is even now transmitted by these apostles through the scriptures. I shared before about the fact that Jesus Christ saw glory in going to the cross to die and take the curse, the weight, the full weight of the curse that sin has brought. And he did that for his people for anyone and everyone who would ever believe in him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that Jesus Christ, the son of God, was willing to die and take the curse, pay the price. The sins that people like us have committed. And Jesus says here, I'm not just praying for the 11 guys in the room here. I'm praying for every single person who will ever believe that gospel who will ever believe that I died for them. That means that if you have believed in Jesus Christ, if you have submitted your life to him as Lord and King, then you need to know this. He is praying for you here. And there's affection in his words. There's deep care and deep passion in his words. That's for you. You're the one he cares about this deeply. Do you ever pray for your friends before you're leaving their home? Let's say you've spent some time with a friend or their family, and now you're about to part ways. Maybe they're leaving or maybe you're leaving. And you say, wait, let, let, let's pray. I want to pray for you. That, that 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 simple act communicates love, doesn't it? It communicates care. because It's as if you're saying, these are my friends, and, and, and we're going to part ways now. But, but they need you, Lord. And, and so I want to entrust them to you. Please watch over them. Please care for them. Jesus' prayer for his friends is just that. It overflows with his, his affection for them, for us. And the three things that he asks for for his friends, remember, they're not just for those 11 men in the room. These are things that God the Son, Jesus Christ, is asking for. He's requesting for you if you've believed in him. And the first thing he asked for, for us, for his friends, is that God the Father would keep us. Keep them, he says. Look at verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. He asked the Father to protect but why? Protect from what? Right? Like, like Brian was saying before, we're not really going to understand what it means to be saved by God if we don't understand what he's saving us from. In the same sense, we don't understand, we're not going to understand why God has to protect us unless we understand what he's protecting us from. Well, Jesus tells us. Look at verse 6. He says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. And now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they believed that you sent me. So, so listen to what he's saying here. He's saying, I gave them your word, God, and they believed. So now, because all that is true, Jesus can now say, keep them. Keep them, Father. Protect them. He's saying, I'm no longer in the world, verse 11. I'm leaving, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except for the son of destruction. He's talking about Judas Iscariot there that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. See, that's not what Jesus asked. He doesn't ask that God the Father would, would just take us out of here. Rescue us from all the trouble and pain right now. No. He's. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So what is Jesus asking God the Father to protect us from, to keep us from? Well, simply put, we could say it's the evil one. What does that mean exactly? Jesus is about to return to the Father, and his friends are staying behind. For, for what he called last week, a, a little while, a little while. And, and Jesus knows what his friends are in for during this little while. They've been hated, but the hate is just going to increase. Jesus tells them that. He knows that they are going to be tempted to abandon him, the one who loves them. In fact, even that night, in just a few hours perhaps, They're going to abandon him. And all this, it's weighing on his heart. But he's not thinking about himself. This is the amazing thing. He's not praying for himself, he's praying for them. It drives him to to plead with the Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name. If they're going to survive in the world, they need you, Father, to keep them. And that's true of us. Jesus knows that his friends, everyone who has ever believed in him, that includes you if you've believed in him, all of us are going to be tempted to deny the name of God at different times. He's saying, God, Father, keep them loyal to your name. Keep them dependent on your name. Bring them back again and again to believe in your name, to trust in your name. Keep bringing them back. They will think about ditching the truth that I gave them. They're, they're, they're going to think about forgetting and ignoring what I revealed to them about you, Father, with all all your promises and your wisdom and all of your commands. Don't let it happen, Father. Don't let them walk away from the truth. He says, they believe that you sent me. But he knows that left to ourselves, we will stop believing. Or we'll just stop caring about the gospel. We'll first stop believing the gospel or we'll stop caring about it. It'll become irrelevant to us. And so Jesus says, keep that. Keep that. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul says these words. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. You see, you see what The Apostle Paul is saying there, he's saying, I've I've delivered the gospel, and I trust that this gospel is able to save you. You're being saved by this gospel if, he says, you hold fast to it. If you keep clinging to it, we need to, to maintain a grip on the gospel. And as Jesus prays here, he's showing us that the only way that's going to happen, the only way we're going to keep a grip on the gospel is if the Father keeps a grip on us. So if you have believed the gospel, you need to keep that gospel. You need to hold on to it. There's no doubt. But for that to happen, the Father needs to keep you. And so Jesus prays, keep them. Keep them. There is is deep, deep assurance for us there. This should should fill us with confidence. You know that James says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power? How much power does the prayer of this righteous person have? Of Jesus, our righteousness, the righteous one. How powerful is this prayer? It's meant to fill us with confidence and comfort. Don't, Don't you appreciate it when a friend tells you that they've been praying for you? Does that mean anything to you? Someone says, I've been praying for you. and uh, Disciple of Christ, Jesus has prayed for you and does pray for you. That you would be protected against everything that threatens to, to lure you away from trusting in the name of God. You see Jesus' love here for you? But that love is not meant to lead us to complacency, you know, to a sense of, well, you know, Jesus got my back. I'm I'm good. I don't need to um, I don't need to really think about holding on to the gospel, clinging to the gospel. Jesus got me. He's praying for me. Well, then we need to remember First Corinthians 15 says it's the same God. He tells us, you're being saved if you hold fast to this word that I preach to you. So so the 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 confidence that Jesus is giving us here by praying for us is not meant to lead us to complacency. So to have kind of a cavalier attitude about the gospel. No, his prayer empowers us. It drives us to cling to the gospel with confidence. He won't let us go. He won't let us let go. We need to focus our lives toward continuing to believe this gospel with with that spirit of of, of confident dependence. Does that even make sense? It's confidence, but it's dependence at the same time. It's not confidence in you. It's confidence in him. Do you ask God to protect you? Do you ask God to keep you? I ask God to protect me a lot. I ask God to protect my family a lot. I ask God to protect us from things like COVID-19. I'm sure you pray for God to protect you and the people you love from COVID-19 from any kinds of danger. But what's Jesus modeling for us here is that we need to be about this. We need to be praying, asking, that God would keep us, would lure us away from wholehearted love. The next request that he makes, the next thing he asks for, he says, Lord, keep them, then he says, sanctify them sanctify them. Look at verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus prays that his people would be sanctified. And what this means, in a sense at least, is to be set apart. To be sanctified means to be, in one sense at least, one piece of it, it means to be wants us to to be distinct from the world where we live. We all know this, right? We've all heard this. God wants our goals and values to reflect the the otherworldly character of Jesus and to reflect his kingdom values. He he wants our lives to, to reflect the ethics of his kingdom, not the ethics of this world, even while we live in this world. And Christians, no doubt, have struggled with what this looks like. Don't you struggle with what that looks like? How do I, how, if I'm a follower of Jesus, how am I supposed to live in such a way that I'm set apart? I'm distinct from this world. We, we can err on, on a couple of different extremes, right? And Christians often have. They've erred on the extreme of complete withdrawal which means like, I'm not a part of the world. I'm going to separate myself from the world. I'm not going to have friends that are not Christians. I'm not going to um, be in relationships with people of any kind of uh, weight or importance that aren't followers of Jesus. I'm going to cut myself off completely. But then we can are on the other extreme too and Christians often have. It's not withdrawal. It's, it's complete conformity. Like I'm totally in the world as if I were of the world. And Jesus doesn't want either of these things for us. He knows how easy it is for us to slip in either direction. That's why he's praying for us. Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. What Jesus is saying here helps us to understand what it means to be set apart in this world. It helps us to understand what it looks like for us to be distinct, but not withdrawn from this world. Verse 18, again, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified. In truth, he's saying, God, Father, you sent me. I'm sending them. I consecrated myself. They also need to be consecrated. And that, that word consecrated, sometimes it's translated as sanctified too. And it it it, it gives a even a clearer understanding into what that word sanctified means, to consecrate or sanctify means to to, to be set apart, but to be set apart for a particular purpose. Not just different, but different for a reason. Not just set apart, but set apart in order to do something. Our calling is not to blend into the world, nor is it to withdraw from the world. It's to be distinctive, but not just for the sake of being different, Your distinctiveness is meant to show the character of Christ and the transforming power of the gospel so that people will believe that gospel. In the same way that Jesus says, I'm sending them like I, I was sent, now I'm sending them. I came into this world and I was utterly different from this world in order to save this world. And he's saying, for us, this is what we're meant to aim for as well. Different so that we can show what life under Christ's lordship looks like, what, what life in his kingdom looks like, so that people will actually want that. We have a mission. Jesus makes it clear. Our calling, not just those apostles, but us as his people, all of us who have believed the gospel, our calling is to communicate to the world that Jesus who Jesus is, and what he's done. And part of how we do that is by not just speaking the words of the gospel, but but supporting that proclamation of the gospel by living in such a way that exhibits the power of the gospel. And living in such a way that, that our goals and our dreams and our character lines up, not perfectly, but lines up with Jesus' goals and dreams and character. By dreams, that's probably a bad word to use. What I mean is his, his goals, what he desired to accomplish. When we're driven by the same thing that everyone around us is driven by, we're not living the way Christ prayed that we would live. No, he's calling us to glorify Christ by living consecrated lives. Not because we want God to reward us for that, or somehow he's going to love us more if we we do that. He can't love us any more than he does. But it's for the sake of Christ's mission. For the sake of Christ's mission. When, When the communication of the gospel is combined with a life that imperfectly but intentionally seeks to line up with who Christ is and what he's done and how he lived, God often uses that to transform the lives of others. There's a last request here. Jesus says, glorify me and I will glorify you, Father. He says, keep my disciples, sanctify my disciples, and lastly, he says, unify them. Unify them. Jesus wants us as this people, to experience oneness, fellowship. Not uniformity. we're not all the same, but, but oneness. What does he mean by that? Again, humans are in <laughs> two extremes here. We, we, can, we can be so obsessed with, with like being like uniform, being all the same, because Jesus wants us to be the same. He wants us to be united so we can all just, just work to be so alike that it becomes this kind of like cultic uniformity, where, where in order to belong, you need to be just like everyone else, and then you can be a part of the club. And so you stop being like everyone else, and then you get kicked out. That's one extreme. But then many of us, at least in our culture, tend to swing towards the other extreme, like, we don't value unity. We value radical individualism. Like, I just want to be left alone. I want to have autonomy. on myself. I want to seek what's good for me. I want to do what I want to do. Jesus says both of those extremes are, are, are deadly. Christ wants us to share that bond of fellowship that exists within the Trinity. You see what he says here? Look at, look at verse 20. He says, I do not ask just for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. In what way? How are we meant to be one? what he says. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. See, I think that when we talk about unity as Christians, we're talking about it in a really superficial way. We tend to get it wrong. What Jesus is calling for here is something supernatural and profound. He wants us to share in the bond of fellowship that has existed within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for eternity. Yes, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they share us, uh, the same purpose. They have, a common, they have common goals. That's true. And as a church, as his people, we also ought to have like, shared purposes, like common goals in life to glorify the name of Christ, like we were saying before. But, but unity isn't just about that. The unity that Jesus is calling us to here is, is it's marked by this mutual desire for the good of the other. It, it's this, remember we said we see it in the Trinity, this mutual honoring where the father honors the son and the son honors the father. That's what he wants to see amongst Christians. A bunch of people that, that we're, we're outdoing one another in love. I want to honor you. I want to love you. I want to care for you just as you want to love and care for me. Reciprocally, we're just, we're just seeking each other's good as a community. Jesus says that's what unity looks like. It's not just they all believe the same thing. No, that's, that's important. But it's not just that. And he says, when that happens, when that kind of unity exists, not just that the church has shared goals, no, not just that, but that there's this mutual desire, one to care for the other, to place the other above him or herself. Jesus says, when that happens, just like it happens in the Trinity, the world will see it and believe that you sent me, he says. There's something about that kind of living that anyone looks at and has to say, that is supernatural. That's not normal. Once again, there's this kind of mission or missionary purpose behind it. What does the world think when the world sees Christians just fight and disrespect one another? And Christians can be really good at that. What does that look like to the world? I'm not talking about disagreeing. I'm talking about what goes beyond disagreeing or debating. What I often see online, and I've, often, and I've also seen up close and personal, is, is it's disagreeing, which manifests itself in, in mocking and dismissing and accusing. I see this going on even right now. One church against the other. Your church is gathering on Sundays. You must not love your neighbors. Oh, your church is not gathering on Sundays? You must be really cowardly and unfaithful. Or rather than saying, well, you know, we're, we're landing in different places here. You're seeking to honor God, and I'm seeking to honor God. Our churches are seeking to honor God, and we're trying to figure out how to do that as wisely as we can. And we're submitting all of our desires to the Lord and asking him for guidance. Maybe you haven't seen this, but I've certainly seen a lot of this. Christians rather than giving each other the benefit of the doubt and say, yeah, we're We're all just trying to do what's right by God. We're all just trying to honor and love him. We may not land in the same place, but let's ask him to help us. I praise God for the way he's leading you. Please pray that he would lead me too. Oh, instead of that, there are accusations leveled and condescending words. You care about social justice, you and and, and, and issues related to race. You just must be a, Marxist or something, or, or you, you hold to a, a complementarian understanding of gender roles, you, you must be a sexist. See, we, I, Within Christianity, with, there's like these intramural squabbles that happen where Christians offend one another much more deeply than I think the world affects us. Look, we can disagree and still be unified. It's possible. It's always happened within the church. What we can't do is mock and accuse and despise and still be unified. That doesn't work. We can't scoff at one another and still maintain unity. But we can disagree. There are, it comes natural to us sometimes, just, just, yeah, scoffing, mocking others who disagree with us. There are ministers who've made a career, I think, out of that kind of trashing other Christians. and It's, it's, it's ugly. And it, it grieves the spirit. It grieves the spirit of the Lord who prayed these words. The gospel is a gospel of reconcil- reconciliation. It unites. It unifies. In fact, you could say that God's entire sweeping plan of salvation is a unification plan because sin came into this world and it fragmented, didn't it? It fragmented creation. It alienated people from each other and, and from their creator. God aims to reverse all that, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this is why Jesus cares so much about unity. He's not just praying, Lord, help my people to get along. They tend to squabble. Help them to just be nice to each other. No, he's asking for much, much more than us being nice to each other. He's asking for us to live in such a way that we are constantly seeking to honor and serve the other above ourselves. Rather than selfishly seeking our own good or, even worse, leveraging one person against the other. God hates that. He hates it so much. So, let me, let me stop. Let me end. What have we seen? Jesus prays for us. Let's, let's walk away at least with that. Jesus prays for us. He, he's our high priest and who, who intercedes for us. He's praying for us in the midst of the pandemic that we're, that we're walking through still. We, we barely see each other anymore. He's praying for our unity. He's praying that the Father would keep us. He's praying that the Father would continue to set us apart. He's praying that the Father would glorify himself through us. He's got us. He is taking care of us. I don't know how long we're going to be doing these these lame virtual services. I don't know. but But I know that he has got us. And his prayers show us what we need to care about most. God's glory. Keeping hold of the gospel. Living lives that are set apart for him. And and, and living in unity with one another. These are the things that we need to care about. Because these are things that he cares about. These are the things we need to pray for. The things we Jesus often in this in this evening as he's with his disciples he, he's told them multiple times, pray in my name. And whatever you ask the Father in my name, you'll receive it. You know we can pray in Jesus' name because we said praying in Jesus' name doesn't just mean like tagging at the end of our prayer in Jesus' name, Amen. Just kind of that little stamp at the end. No, praying in Jesus' name means praying. Among other things, it means praying in ways that align with what Jesus cares about. Praying for things that that we can put Jesus' name on because we know that's what he prays for. That's what he wants. And so I can confidently pray for that in his name. We can pray for these things in Jesus' name because that's the very things that on the last night that he spent with his disciples, he says, I'm all about these things. What are we praying for, church? What are we praying for? Let's pray like Jesus did. Let's align our deepest desires for ourselves as individuals, for our families, and for our church, let's, and for our world. Let's align those desires with his. And if we do that, then we can come before the throne of grace with full confidence, saying, Lord, I'm not demanding anything, but I'm requesting, I'm pleading with you, but I'm pleading knowing that what I'm asking for is your will. You've shown it to me through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us a high priest like Jesus. Lord, Lord we, we, we don't know what to, we, we can't make sense of, of everything that you've said, that, that, that you said in this prayer, Christ. But, but, but the, the little bit that we've been able to, to glean, the, the crumbs that we've been able to pull away from it, Father, we ask that you would use them to, uh, to, to nourish us and to shape the way that we live and the way that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.